A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through chapter 58. Through chapter 58. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Still dry July, so less intoxicating, but still fun. Still fun. We just got out of like a 20-minute, 28-minute laugh session wherein we dry ran a brand new show that we're considering and yeah, I, yeah it, was, it was a fun time a concept i should say maybe not a show but uh, well you know it's it's a thing yeah a concept we dry ran the concept we're not going to claim it's a show yet but it's something yes, it is it is quite something you know what else is something pj hmm. today our reading and our episode eight here discussing the hero of ages by brandon sanderson and we are going to chat about chapters 51 through 58 but before that as you said, it's a dry July. Let's talk about what we're sipping on. Yeah. So I have a non-alcoholic bourbon that I picked up that I hadn't gotten a chance to try yet until today. It is Kentucky 74 by Spiritless. So I think it comes out to like 0.5% ABV. So effectively non-alcoholic in the same way that kombucha is non-alcoholic. I made a whiskey sour out of it and... I know that this is a very different product than like actual booze. So I decided to go to the source and used Spiritless's recipe for their whiskey sour. So that would be actually very similar to what you and I would call whiskey sour. So two ounces of Spiritless Kentucky 74 bourbon cocktail replacement, whatever they call it. One ounce of lemon juice. Three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup. I actually used rosemary simple syrup because I had that and I did not have regular simple. So I used rosemary. I like rosemary. So I figured it'd be good. And it goes well with lemon. Perfect. And then one egg white. And I think that's it. Yeah. Cool. So dry shaken. Yeah. It actually just calls to be shaken with ice, shaken with ice and then then served. But I know as well as you do that shaking with egg should dry shake it first. Otherwise, it'll just get weird and clumpy and kind of gross. So mm-hmm. dry shook, added ice, shook it, and then garnished it with a lemon wheel and a maraschino cherry. So I have not yet tasted this, but it looks really nice. Yeah. Hmm. I wanted so badly to like this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's just sweet. With sort of an aftertaste of what I smell off of this, the spirit, spiritless, which is that sort of smell that you get when you open up a like over oxidized vermouth, like a sure. red vermouth. I, I don't know how to describe it better than that, but that's just the aftertaste of this as well. It's like hmm. sweet and lemon and then that aftertaste and that's kind of it. Okay. I don't know. Don't love it. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah, I could probably do some tinkering and, like, really taste it and build something based on it specifically, but I haven't done that yet, so I will probably right. reapproach this. Because this bottle is more expensive than most bourbons I ever buy. <clears throat> wow. This was a 
$36,750. Holy cow. That is expensive. Yeah. Following that up with anything? Any any backup beverage? Backup culture pop soda again. So this one is pink grapefruit, ginger, and juniper. Nice. Culture pop's great. Had one of those mm-hmm. this weekend. Good. Good deal. Yeah. What are you drinking, Crossland? I am doing something a little bit different. So last time I ran just with like a grapefruit seltzer. This time I'm actually doing a pure seltzer plus grapefruit bitters. So doing the, you know, the attempt at the Rob Hart, of which I'll get to in a second. The reason that I'm doing this is oddly specific, actually, because I did buy stuff to make something today. But I have a reason that I decided against it. And that is Rob Hart. We'll get back to that in a moment here. And then I am also following that up with a Rishi Elderberry Healer Tea, which is... Rishi is one of my favorite tea brands when I worked for the tea company, not the tea company, the coffee company that I worked for. Really loved selling their stuff. They're fantastic. They didn't sell in retail. Now they sell in retail. It's great. Very glad to have access to their stuff. To get to the other thing that I was talking about here, why bring up Rob Hart? Why why do this drink? I want to make mention of something on the show. You know, we, we normally don't do, we, we don't currently run ads. We don't currently do anything like that. This is not intended necessarily to be an ad, but to call attention to something that I find really important and near and dear, which is litreactor.com. Litreactor.com has been really helpful when I wanted to find materials on how to write better in general essays, partially founded by Chuck Polinick. And a couple of other folks that have kind of built up the website and made it this repository for aspiring writers, including like classes and connections and all kinds of things that you can do to kind of mingle with like-minded people in, in the writing sphere and writing space. It's really, really fantastic. The reason that I bring it up here and kind of read this like an ad spot, even though I don't have anything inside of our document here, is because Lit Reactor is actually going through some hard times right now. They are in the process of offboarding some shares to a previous owner who of whom passed away back in 2017 and they're having to settle some things with the estate and just get kind of his involvement his stake out of it and give it to the estate and they also have another silent partner that's backing out at the same time and i I mentioned all this and invoke rob's name here because he is one of the three people that are running the site now and so bringing him up into this he kicked off today or earlier this week an indiegogo campaign that's about halfway funded right now looking for 30 grand basically to give them enough to continue to operate the site for a long time get them back on their feet pay out some of these various things and let them continue to kind of function as usual in addition to hiring someone to finish the lip reactor 2.0 that was in work before the previous owner and original founder passed away in 2017 so yeah that was a lot to say. This is a really great tool. I highly recommend it if you out there are a writer or anyone else or aspiring storyteller. There are tons of excellent essays. There are a lot of short fiction out there. Yeah. So go support it. I did today. I bought a leather-bound copy of Fight Club, signed and lettered by Chuck Polinick. Nice. In support of this. So That's awesome. Yeah. Highly recommend. Go check it out. Do it. You've talked cool. about Lit Reactor for a very long time. Just I have. in our own like friend group. I've I've used it for a very long time. It's been a way it, honestly, it's taught me so much about writing. A lot of consider this, which is my favorite book on writing again by Chuck Polinick. A lot of those lessons are either are broken down by Chuck himself or by some other authors of whom studied under uh, Craig Clevenger and some, a lot of other great authors that I've just learned a ton from, from building prose and thinking about prose and sort of the analytics and analysis. So I, I tweeted it out, but it'll also be in a, a link on this show. So 
Perfect. Give it a give it a peek. If you wouldn't mind, that'll be going through the end of July 2022. So give it a look. Thanks for uh, listening to my little tirade, folks. All right, cool. So with that, PJ, how do you feel about this week's rating? I feel good about it. I'm trying to put like a concise feeling to it, though. There were a lot of sort of epiphany moments for me in this in this section. So I feel awakened by it, I guess. We'll go with that. Awakened? <laughs> I don't know. What kind of bullshit? <laughs> what kind of what kind of philosophical <laughs> absolute bullcrap are you peddling on our show all of a sudden? Mm. Who are you? Who what alien abducted you and replaced the PJ that I know and love that said was said this is fucking good, man. Um <laughs> I'm just kidding. No comment. An alien would not comment. This is the beginning of our climax to some degree, right? So we've got three more episodes after this one to wrap up this book here. And so this is the, you know, we do get a climax in one character's perspective. We get some rising stakes, some rising action from some other point of views and end apart, I think, very kind of with our feet on the ground, but our heads in the sky in terms of where the hell we're going. So, yeah. You piece of shit. I feel awakened. <laughs> awakened. Cool. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Starting this episode with some passive aggression. <laughs> I mean, it's not even, it's not really even passive. It's pretty aggressive. All right. Cool. With that, we'll get into the actual breakdown here and talk about the chapters and we'll, we'll find your point of awakening as it were. <laughs> okay. All right. With that, we start with chapter 51. It's nice to see Ellen flitting around in a mist cloak and being a mistborn himself. Ellen contemplates the situation he faces before hearing a village submerged in screams. He makes his way there and dispatches the Coloss, attacking the city quickly. I find, though, the fact that these creatures are more human than they were initially presented to be kind of a horrifying concept that Ellen kind of touches on a little bit. I just wonder your thoughts now that we're kind of seeing them be slaughtered really for the first time after this revelation jesus i'm not even drinking i guess my my take on this is like like you mentioned they're they're seeming more and more human we're dwelling on this more so they are they're still the same as they were before you know so it's all about our perspective of this fuck dude what what do you mean they're still the same they're the same creatures as they were mm-hmm. when ellen went to jossie's camp and okay they, yeah. and they were like professing their humanity at that point and now it just feels more real because not only do they like we already knew they understood it we already knew that they understood to a certain extent that they were not quite human but had the capability of being such and now that we know where they came from we're faced with this sort of retrospective look at this and it is horrifying, but at the same time, they're still the same creatures that are brutally murdering entire towns mindlessly. So even though they have the capability of being human, they, they're still acting carnally and in this bloodlust, bloodlust state. So I don't know how to feel about it still. Like it, it, it hasn't quite gripped me as as this like there there's the tragedy of it but it's not like i'm 
now horrified by them slaughtering the Coloss because they have to in order to save the like still human people that they're rampaging. You know, I don't know that that's meandering and kind of bullshitty, but I don't, I don't, well, I don't it, know. I, I guess. <laughs> I, I yeah I, I think I I think I kind of see what you're picking at right which is this idea that they are still partially human at the very least the last point that you're making is that they are still partially human and yet they still need to be stopped from just like humans killing any humans that are you know your superman your superhero would swoop in to kind of like save the day right kind of the the same concept same idea so it's it's not it's not terribly shocking because you bloodshed is still bloodshed no matter what right and ellen dispatches the colossus because they are kind of still there there are elements of humanity but they are still different creatures they aren't exactly human they're derived kind of from humans more or less right um, so it's they're still separate but there's that kind of lingering question i think that that brandon wants us to consider here thinking about coloss and the way that they're expended or the way that they came into being in the first place and contemplating their place it does make me wonder if it's less of a total transformation like very clearly there's still some little part of them that remembers what they were whether or not there's like consciousness with like among that or if there's if they're just picking it up because they see how they make new ones that they know that they came from humans as well. Like the most horrifying part would be if there's like a conscious human life trapped inside of this body that can't do anything. That's the most horrifying part to me. Yeah. Versus if they were actually fused together in some way versus like one, one being the physical manifestation, the other one being like trapped mm-hmm. would be, yeah, fair point. That would be terrifying. That'd be pretty awful. Brandon shows a lot of like excellent writing drops here inside of this section. I, I really like the way that he makes kind of Ellen contemplate the sort of negligibility of a single Mistborn in the face of this sort of giant grand farce of a war against an entity that, you know, it, he just paints this hopelessness sort of from Ellen's perspective super well over the course of this week. And this is sort of the, the first face of it. So I, I really like this quote. He fought on. And as he did, the prevalence of death around him seemed a metaphor for all he had done over the last three years. He should have been able to protect the people. He tried so hard to protect the people. He'd stopped armies, overthrown tyrants, reworked laws, and scavenged supplies. And yet, all of that was a tiny drop of salvation in a vast ocean of death, chaos, and pain. He couldn't save the Empire by projecting a corner of it, just as he couldn't save a village by killing a small fraction of Kolos. Just sort of paints this you know, this drowning doubt in sort of the actions that Ellen is taking and the idea that he can't make a difference. And it really reminds me in a not all that dissimilar way to what our Terrisman friend has been confronted with, with his sense of leadership and sort of the way that neither of them, neither Sazed nor Ellen feel like they can make really a difference in this moment. That's a great comparison. They're both having tremendous trouble with the scale of their influence and they're sort of internally fighting with the ideology of perfection that they both kind of have where says has it with the religions like needing to find something that is perfectly flawless when it comes to ideology and ellen in struggling with to a different degree but similar like the idea of wanting wanting perfection in in goodness for his people 
and he's he's breaking he's broken to a certain extent that sort of ideology but he still wants it he still strives for it so they're they're both starting to accept those concessions that must be made but it's yeah a super apt comparison yeah i i think that they're accepting those concessions and then they're also accepting the fallout from the concessions that they're making like the fallout that that decision brings to them in ellen's case right now that's like abject i wouldn't say it's kind of like he's he's hitting a point where he feels sort of depressed like not nearly to the degree but he's he's facing this seemingly unscalable mountain of a of a conflict here and he's he's just stuck Mm -hmm. in the worst kind of way so after saving the village and feeling the defeat of the small infinitesimal action of saving the lives you know kind of that are wasted here regardless because they're going to be killed by the impending ash and the, the destruction of the world he's confronted by an elderly villager who mistakes elland for the lord ruler before he states close enough and flees the scene this is such a tough way to end the chapter if, if you wanted a way to solidify the thoughts that we had before this is this is how you do it that's a weird turning point for elland yeah that's a real weird one like but you could kind of see it coming it's this sort of final feeling it feels like a final turn from seeing the good and like seeing the the sort of glimmer of hope or the redemption i guess in the lord ruler's actions based on like what he realized he had to do in order to like keep the world going so sort of Becoming a sympathizer of the Lord Ruler to a certain extent, recognizing the similarities of like the Lord Ruler and how he's been operating to finally just kind of giving into that entirely and saying like, yeah, I kind of am doing the same thing. It's it's that acknowledgement, right? Like it yeah. is it is strictly him like staring in the face and conceding that he is continuing down this path, that this is the path that he has walked not to the same extremes but to even be drawn into comparison and to be in a weird way this even though he's mischaracterized here he's he's misattributed the lord ruler was a symbol of like a hope a savior of sorts and so even that attribution he's still like well i guess it's a good thing because they think they're thinking about being saved and like He's the one who would save them before. And at the same time, it's like this crushing the, I'm being compared to the Lord ruler, meaning that like my reach and my my good and everything else that I've tried to do hasn't even spread. It still can't supersede this legend that came before. And so there's this combination of, like you said, admitting and acknowledging that this is that he has a lot in common. And then at the same time, also being just beaten down by this idea that he can't beat back that image that was crafted, you know, for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, you couldn't, you couldn't reshape the world in three years. Oh, sorry, bud. <laughs> Lord ruler did it in a couple minutes. It's true. It's true. Oh man. That makes it so much more sad when you put it that way. <laughs> All right. With that, we move into chapter 52. We've got our logbook here. Near the end, the ash began to pile up in frightening amounts. I've spoken of the special microbes that the Lord Ruler devised to help the world deal with the ash falls. They did not feed on ash. 
really. Rather, they broke it down as an aspect of their metabolic functions. The volcanic ash itself is actually good for soil, depending on what one wishes to grow. Too much of anything, however, is deadly. The water is necessary for survival, yet too much will drown. During the history of the final empire, the land balanced on the very knife edge of disaster via the ash. The microbes broke it down about as rapidly as it fell, but when there was so much of it that it had oversaturated the soil, it became more difficult for plants to survive. In the end, the entire system fell apart. Ash fell so steadily that it smothered and killed, and the world's plant life died off. The microbes that had no chance of keeping up, for they needed time and nutrients to reproduce. I think what's really cool about this is that this is the sort of natural-focused explanation of preservation and ruins balance. And their balancing act and how it's very slightly tipped in the favor of ruin and over eons that made the difference. And this is exactly that understanding, but in a strictly natural and biological sense. It is it is still governed by the principles of ruin and preservation, right? It like is. it's still governed by those principles, kind of like you're saying. I think it's important to point out though that this is the Lord Ruler system, right? Like this is him with access to the power of preservation and forming the world this way. You know? I know. Uh, and but yeah, it is just yeah. like you're saying, it's that axis of power. I just want to make sure that we don't, you know don't because the world was not covered yeah. in ash before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it is it is fantastic, though, and I think it's a fascinating comparison to to sit in. And I think it gets into kind of the overall theory of a lot of the logbooks of this week, which are the delicate balance of preservation and ruin and how now how that was tipped one way and now it's tipped the other way by a lot. Mm -hmm. And how those effects are coming to bear on the world. So finally, we're back with Tensoon and also find ourselves back in Luthadel and we find it very different than he remembered. It's streets packed with people trying to escape the tumult and chaos the outside world is facing. It's a it's it's a packed packed city. It's all very very tough, very different world than even how we remember it. Yeah, I, I think this was a really good reminder for me of where we were last time we saw Ten Soon, and I guess how far we've come since this book started. And what's changed? This was, I don't know the best way to describe it other than grounding. It was a very grounding chapter for me because it was sort of a subtle reminder of everything that's different. And, and I don't know, maybe, maybe that's, uh, hmm. it's the shift to the status quo, right? Like this is, it's, it's informing the shift here, right? Because he's been underground for a year since the end of the last book over the course of this time span. Right. And now he's just coming out. So there's been, I, I'm not sure if it's a couple of weeks or a couple of months at this point that have passed since the very beginning of this novel, I would say weeks that has kind of led us to this point. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's very grounding and it, it establishes that, Everything is dramatically off, as Tensoon had even stated to the the governing body of the Chandra. Yeah, that's true. The seconds and the like. And the like. So, and and the like, and the I think like. it's just the seconds. Is it just the seconds? No, there's the first. Okay. All right, fair. And I guess the other younger generations that are their lackeys, bastards bastards those <laughs> bastards um 
Tensu, though, does prove that he is the goodest boy when he says, I should never have left her. My foolish, conjurous sense of duty. I should have stayed here and told her what I know, little though it is. The world could end because of my foolish honor. And from there goes to like reinforce that Vin is capable of doing the impossible since she was able to befriend someone pushing against her every instinct to do so in Tensoon, this Chandra, right? And and just the way that she changed and shaped everything by pushing for this friendship. But yeah, so what you mentioned in that quote, the Chandra sense of duty is something that I kind of want to dig into a little bit because you remember how I was constantly talking about like the compulsion and like whether or not this contract was like a magically binding thing. And if it was like just something that they could not physically break or mentally break or like they they couldn't break it even if they wanted to. And that didn't Mm -hmm. quite prove to be true, but I'm kind of coming back to this idea of a compulsion. And I think it's less to do with this contract like I had been positing before, but following through with sort of the reluctance to share anything that the Kolos did with Vin, these blessings might have something to do with it. I don't know, some something compelling them to act in a certain way. It's not forcing their hand. It's not acting for them, but it is a source of motivation. It's hard to break. That's that's an interesting point where it's it's – there's something else to the contract is what you're suggesting. Not necessarily to the contract, to the, the control blessings. that's exerted. Yeah. Yeah. Like Vin needed to like really heavily soothe human to get him to like show or riot. I think she, she rioted him to like follow through with what he, she could tell he was feeling, but wasn't like quite able to act on, on his own. Like, I wonder, I wonder if there's more to the blessings than strictly like boons. Yeah. Yeah more to it than just the powers that are granted by the stakes themselves. Interesting. Yeah. I, I wonder, um, you know, we've got a couple of, a couple of chapters left, just a few. So after seeking the bones of Kelsier in the hidden burial spot where Orsor had left them, he dons them and forms himself into Kelsier, the survivor in an attempt to ascertain information about what's been going on over the past year or so. We cut perspectives and move to Wellen, leaning against his spear. And it's nice to see this man again, considering the last time we saw him, he was under siege by Vin and Zane. And the little line that he gives where he goes like, oh, not again. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> It truly kind of horrifying <laughs> in its own right, yeah. but yeah, it is a funny little throwback and mm-hmm. like, honestly could have done without it, like could have gotten away entirely without it, but it was a great little sort of, I don't know. I don't want to say fan service cause I don't think it's that it's just another little bit of perspective that he doesn't have to make a new character for. Yeah. Sorry. In, in a way, and I, I don't mean to cut you off too much, in a way this feels like a very, man, I don't mean this to maybe sound as condescending as it might to some, but this is almost like a very Joss Whedon-esque joke, which is kind of like the the sort of callback humor and like the the quick witty line. And it just feels, it feels like very snappy in a way that a lot, like this is played very seriously in the previous book like this is a very serious moment that he's been through this is traumatic and it's played for humor here which is a very whedon-esque move Mm -hmm. 
I can see um, that. If that makes sense. It does. Yeah, totally. But at the same time, he's not under threat of two Mistborn. So maybe there is a little bit of levity in the air in, in that respect. <laughs> I mean, I'm not I'm not truly sure what's <laughs> more terrifying. The two Mistborn that come out of nowhere and kill everyone or the floating dead guy that you know to be dead that some people worship showing up. Yeah, there's that. There is that. There is that. <laughs> Speaking of, I feel like we get a little bit more information on Chandra and what they're capable of here. Sure. Like, apparently they can't produce hair on their own. The body that they're consuming has to have hair. So this is a bald Kelsier that we're dealing with, which brings a weird question for me. Does that mean that no matter what, if you're redigesting bones that have already been used because they like expel the bones themselves, right? Then yep. like it'll automatically be bald the second time or are the bones more of a like kind of catch all term for the body of the person being imitated, including flesh and hair if necessary. I believe that they are just the bones. I believe that that is kind of the intent here. So in order to imitate hair, he has to digest hair, but like skin's fine, whatever. Yeah, he can make skin. And eyes and organs and stuff. I mean, yeah, I guess there's a question of how deep does the imitation go in terms of like organs. Well, we know he makes like lungs and he makes. Yeah, it's fair. We do know that they make the lungs in order to speak. So there, there has to be some sort of operable way for that to happen. Do Chandra eat? And do Chandra poop? I would, I mean, we know that Chandra eat. Do they shed mass in some way? Hmm. 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 Do a Chandra shed mass. Okay, cool. <laughs> what is going on? Fair enough. So he determines through this conversation, though, that he has with Wellen and Riddle, Riddle, Riddle and Wells, that after getting this information that something is seriously out of place with Penrod and the strange orders he's been giving the populace. What'd you think about this chunk? Yeah. I mean, what could they possibly mean that the king is acting weird? Hmm. I guess hmm? really what this tells me is, or at least shows me that Ruin's influence is not quite as subtle as it's kind of made out to seem from like, Marsh's perspective when he was spiking Penrod, it kind of made it seem like it would be this very subtle little nudge in different directions. But in, in reality, he's acting like a fucking maniac. <laughs> so, I don't know. And maybe it speaks to that accessibility, right? Because we had talked previously about like the, his targeting of like broken people or people that are susceptible, right? Or that broken people rather are more susceptible. And maybe he's just exerting more control because the circumstances are more dire. And so he is able to push him off a deeper end yeah. than Marsh anticipated. Also, Marsh is in a really weird spot. I don't know that I would trust most of what Marsh thinks immediately. You know what I mean? Like, That's fair. He's... He's having a bad time. <laughs> I guess anyone in control or like anyone that Ruin is influencing is subtle compared to what it's what's happening to Marsh. So Penrod and Marsh. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm talking from Marsh's perspective when he was, when oh, he was spiking yeah. Penrod. Right. Right. Great. Great point. Everything else has been very subtle except for this literal 
absolute like fighting in the streets for water and stuff like that. Like, geez, geez. Very, uh, Immortan Joe. It's very, very Mad Maxi. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Very Immortan Joe. I, I was trying to remember the speech that it gives. I think you come here for the water. I will feed you. And I will give you the water. Look at my wife's. I am gross. I'm really, really gross. Exceptionally gross. I'm I'm just imagining how it should have ended now. Like that's that's where I went with that whole thing. Mm-hmm. So cool. All right. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um so through through the scene Tensoon ultimately informs them to run and hide in the caves where the army was trained before he goes to change his bones out for the dog ones before he can get there he's stopped what do you think about Tensoon's confrontation as Kelsier with the people who worship him as savior martyr and this godlike figure I think that this is going to cause even more weird fracturing among the church of the survivor there's going to be this contingent of people that are adamant that Kelsier's back, baby. Like, <laughs> I saw him. I talked to him. He's back. And then there are going to be the people that call them fucking crazy because that's fucking crazy. Naturally. <laughs> and like, they still believe in the church, but maybe not quite that hard. And like, it's going to be even more divisions and more fractures and more sex. I, I don't know. Just the way religions go when you're, you're suggesting when like a breakdown back up. Yeah. Okay. I, <laughs> when messiahs show back up, because that's super happened a bunch of times. <laughs> I mean, fair fair point. I I do I do catch your drift, and I do actually really like it. I think that that's a good good idea on the potential outcome here is that you see like a fracturing think catholicism and and lutheranism and all of the various other types of denominational christianity like it all Mm -hmm. all flowed from one point and then everyone starts to give different impressions on islam to a like the way that things well right islam mormonism i mean it's all if if you go like back to the basis of abrahamic religions and you talk like judaism and then you start to like break it all up that's all just kind of it's all stacked on top of each other in spirals in different directions in terms of interpretations and you know where your messianic figure is if they've even come in the first place in some cases. So, right. yeah. yeah. As far as sort of Tensoon goes, I could totally see him getting addicted to that sort of feeling of being a Messiah <laughs> and being a God. He talks about it. Do you in, think he liked it? I think so. He said he was looking at it with reverence it, and like, I know he, it kind of yeah, is implied that he means that like there's power in these bones. Mm hmm. But who doesn't like a little bit of power? That's true. That is kind of a core concept of the the series, too, to some degree. Is like mm-hmm. the people chase power. Tensoon kind of found his, and that's why he keeps him. Yep. Well, yeah. the stated reason is so nobody else could abuse these. Right. But, but he's going to use these. Yeah. He does look at them as a tool, which is an important clarification. But he is. it seems very likely that he's going to use them. I also love that like the claw that he makes as the wolfhound is more dexterous than the regular yeah. one. Like he's just making subtle improvements. He's able to like hold a stick and bindle as a wolfhound. Yeah, right. I mean, I think he tied it as a backpack, right? Or something like that. Something like that. 
Pack them into a sack. Yeah, the stick and bindle though is a great. great <laughs> <laughs> it's just like sticking out of his back, like he just formed it into his spine, <laughs> like a reverse anglerfish. All right, I dig that. Okay, we go on to chapter fifty-three here. The logbook, as we started off, the pact between preservation and ruin is a thing of gods and difficult to explain in human terms. Indeed, initially there was a stalemate between them. On one hand, each knew that only by working together could they create. On the other hand, both knew that they would never have complete satisfaction in what they created. Preservation would not be able to keep things perfect and unchanging, and ruin would not be able to destroy completely. Rune, of course, eventually acquired the ability to end the world and gain satisfaction he wanted. But then, that wasn't originally part of the bargain. God, this is all such cool lore, dude. Like, why (laughs) couldn't we just have a whole book on this? God damn it, this is so fucking cool. So there's there's a decent argument that we are reading the whole book on this. (laughs) I know, but I just want, want that book. Not instead, but also... I would like it as a bonus, please. Mm-hmm. Please feed me book. <laughs> Fed. Gib. Gib book. Gib, gib book. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I love the idea of these two gods, right? And the way that this all kind of works. And that's why it's nice to have this like logbook kind of feed feed us the information side by side from this hero of ages and give us this idea and this picture of the larger connected sort of aspects between the two. Mm-hmm. which then feeds into like our knowledge and understanding of what's going on in our characters point of views. Yeah. Like it, it, it really is like, I haven't heard these two logbook entries side by side until now, like the previous chapter in this one, but it really, it really mm-hmm. does follow the exact same sort of pattern that it talked about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's all consistent. It is all consistent. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so getting into the chapter itself, let's talk about Spook and Beldra's conversation. I forgot to mention last week that she'd kind of effectively been held hostage. I don't know how that slipped to my mind uh, <laughs> as we were wrapping up the week, but I'm a fool. Happens sometimes. We uh, but here, well, it, it was our first sober episode of the, the month, too, so it's like yeah, on top I, of that, there's no fucking excuse you expect us to remember stuff while sober? While sober? Really? What is this? So, anyway, we, we get a conversation about the water and about her parentage and what a rough parentage it kind of was. I, I love the detail that comes in with her character that she's effectively bastard and basically name only as the Ska child. Her father's wife, barren and unable to have children, so he had children with the maid, with the consent of the mother and his wife, and I, it's it's heartbreaking as far as this little moment goes to hear the whole thing and then to roll into where spook might have gotten his noble heritage from it's just it's a lot of tight emotional detail shared between the two of them here that really kind of builds this sort of budding relationship including the the gift of this dress which is another interesting facet that spook piles on in inside of this chapter i think so just to name it i guess spook his grandfather on his father's side was it Probably. I thought it was his mother's, his mother's side. side. Whatever it was. Yeah. I think he even says probably. So it, it it is still a little bit shrouded in mystery, but ultimately it doesn't really matter, you know? Mm-hmm. We start getting more and more kind of openness from Spook and then actively saying, like, I don't understand why I'm so open with her. Like, I shouldn't be sharing as much as I am. 
which easy to attribute to just hormonal teenage boy, but <laughs> I don't know. I have other theories, but that's all kind of contingent on later conversations with Beldra. I mean, I think it's pertinent to run through those theories and kind of the way that I've even structured this is that there's some information that comes up later that informs some of this. So it feels necessary to kind of talk about it as we go. I don't, I don't see the need to. Okay. That's right. So to speak, there's a reveal. That's a lot of fun. Of course, if you've, if you've listened along up until this point, you know, the reveal. So yeah, the reveal is that Beldra is a coin shot. Mm hmm. But I think it's entirely plausible that she is a misborn because I think mm. that he's being soothed throughout all of this and or maybe rioted. We've talked about how those can be very similar in effect depending on how they're used. And we've seen that through Alrian and Breeze. Um, Alrian? You don't even say her name right. You hate her so she much. She doesn't deserve it. <laughs> 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 I was hoping we get through this episode without talking about her, but here we fucking are. <laughs> you brought her up too. Yeah, I know. But he's explicit about it. He he's very clearly saying like this is going against what I think I should be doing. But he's choosing to do it. Like that's very consistently how one would react when being soothed into sharing information. You know? You think that he's being soothed into sharing this? I think he's just being vulnerable. He's a teenage boy who likes a girl. Yes, but there's so much, there's so much of the, I don't know why I'm like sharing this information. Like he's conscious about not understanding why he's sharing. Like, yes, it can be just horny teenage boy, but <laughs> I think it's soothing. Okay. I think it can be both. It can be both. It, it could be both. Yeah. Or rioting. Rather, I think it's rioting. I think he's rioting the hormonal response to pretty girl. Okay. Rioting. <laughs> All right. I did I did just want to pause it when we were talking about kind of the spook's parentage here. It's likely if as I think about like the, the family tree, it's likely maternal because clubs also ha- is it Alamancer, so being his mom's brother, his uncle. You know, I yeah. feel like that makes the most sense lineage wise, but not to say it's not possible. No, that way. makes total sense. And I, for whatever reason, I thought it was, I thought clubs was his dad's brother. So that's where that mm. was coming from initially. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, backstory back to the other one. It's yeah. Sister. Yep. Cool. Yeah. I remember <laughs> I that now. All right. All right. Mist Borny Beldra. Everyone's everyone's suspicious. Everyone has two powers. <laughs> Nobody's safe. So I think Beldra she points out <laughs> out a critical bit that everyone is looking to him for change and draws comparisons between her brother and Spook, which we know to not be the only thing the pair share in common. Through this intimate sharing of information, it feels like they're actually growing kind of close, like I was saying before. The thing that they share in common though is that is that little spiky boy. <laughs> In in them, mm-hmm. a little little spiky boy. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a lot of comparisons of different leaders, mm-hmm. like how people on each side of different conflicts are similar to one another. Like, like we were just talking about with the Lord Ruler and Elland, 
now Quellian and Spook, and I know there are more that I'm missing. I mean, stays at Nelland. We've drawn comparisons between Yeoman and Nelland. I mean, we even see Yeoman and Vin kind of face off a little bit this week in the way that they are both intensely strategic. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of a fun commentary on leadership, I guess. Yeah, I, I think the bit that resonates with me really strongly out of this is this sort of idea of the humans versus gods when we talk about comparing these leaders right like our threat is so extra it's so out there it's a stretch beyond anything that we faced before so all of these characters draw more comparisons to the bad people than i think you normally probably would like they they kind of it's like there's an appeal to humanity when facing such a distinctly omnipotent threat it, there's there's just this division and so like even the lord ruler feels like a, a down-to-earth guy <laughs> compared to the existential threat that is well the very stential threat that is ruin mm-hmm. what is the term stential i don't know i just thought it was funny <laughs> uh <laughs> like can you break down existential to that like that base like I, I, th- I would think it would break down to existence. Yeah, totally. You're right. It's you're right. It does break down that way. There, there it's are only very, three cases. So, what did you mean by it's very stential, as as opposed to existential? It's just an extra fun <laughs> note there now. <laughs> yeah. There, there are only two words: sub subsistential and existential. Subsistential means in in like facing sustenance or in thinking about sustenance, and then existential is what we what we know, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course. So, what what do you what do you want from me, PJ? Did you <laughs> want me know. to define? <laughs> no, I just want you to. I want it to be well known that you said existential, corrected yourself to stential, and then just blew as it right very past it as if it existed <laughs> yeah. as a word. I love the idea of existentially saying that stential exists. And I just created a logic loop there that will just feed onto itself forever. <laughs> oh, good. Philosophy and the definition of words are great. Yeah. Okay. So I, I guess like my core point here being though, is that there's this, it, like all of these characters feel a lot more approachable and a lot more real. And I think that Brandon does a really clever thing here in not giving us an easy out in the way of assassination for any of these characters either, which makes us face their like very real human characteristics as opposed to just knocking their block off and moving on to the next thing, you know? And it makes us face kind of the humanity of the whole situation, despite the overarching, larger-than-life, existential threat. You also put an extra T in there. What? Existential? Existential? existential existential yeah existential yeah existential that's right exist existential i'm staring <laughs> at how it's pronounced there are two t's egg 
It's right yeah. here. It's right here, yeah, you're fucker. Right. You're right. <laughs> I just, I don't want to pick that. <laughs> it's like, I'm not saying it wrong this time, right? All right. So we move to Dern, and he's immediately negotiating a contract to be named a lord under Ellen for the work he's about to be doing on behalf of the Empire as they set up their plan to unleash the water back into the canals and getting all of the various people from the criminal underbelly of the Barrows. Is it Barrows or Harrows? I forget. Harrows, I think. I think it's Harrows. From the Harrows to side with them. Yeah. I I don't know what it is, but I really like this progression or I guess lack of progression from Dern throughout this entire story. He's like as soon as we learn that he's the leader of this thieving crew, all of his actions and decisions just make sense. They are consistent with his character, including this no- negotiation, just totally totally in line with what you would expect from him. It is a true character i don't i don't know i don't know what it is why is that so like stand out for me can you explain why like does it seem like there's not enough of those around or this one just stands out so starkly i think it just stands out so starkly i think part of the thing that this book feels very different than a couple of the other ones because it feels more in line with some like pretty classic character tropes from a thieving perspective and like Dern fits your like I'm in guy you know what I mean like you you know you know enough about him that he feels consistent with the people that you know that are like this from other stories so it's very believable right it's very he's the roguish type he is in charge of this thieving crew he does lead that and we don't need a whole lot of characterization there or we uh, brandon sanderson gets away with it via shorthand effectively because of how consistent he behaves with our expectation of that sort of archetype if that makes sense that's totally that's my thought for why dern dern checks the boxes Dern is as Dern does. Dern to Dern to Dern. Dern to Dern to Dern Dern. Dern Dern to Dern Dern. But yeah, I, I like I like Dern. I like his inclusion and I like reverting back to him here and kind of including him in with with everything else. Kind of brings brings the focus, brings the attention back to him. So we end the chapter with Spook in a bar, being celebrated and drinking his fill after talking people into rebelling against the citizen Quellian, as we discussed previously. Kelsier says in the back of his head. They love you, and you deserve it, in his ear. And you know what? Frankly, I know that this is ruin, but I think the kid deserves the compliment. I think I agree. Absolutely. And it's okay to take this one. I can get behind that. He's absolutely been a savior of the people. He absolutely deserves to be celebrated and deserves to indulge in that celebration, even though he can't. (laughs) indulge too much you know he has 10 drinks right and yeah, he like, doesn't fucking feel it yeah because he well that's just because he's just burning pewter to burn pewter you know yeah i guess you're right he could indulge but chooses not to yeah which is kind of intentional because oh he, totally he, he said that that he said that that in and of itself la 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 la, la. he said that that in and of itself was a source of mythology for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This idea, even that he had like a beer at every bar, right? Like it's, 
it's very much like a thing where it's like, well, he toasted with me. Well, he toasted with me. And you get like a bunch of these people together and they're like, they had 10 beers in the span of two hours. Like, holy shit. How is he not falling over by the end? And it does build that myth um, in a, in a fun way. Mm-hmm. And I think it does support him. So I, I too like that kind of rationale and that idea to give him, to give him a little bit, of, a little bit of character in the world and to build up his own mystery a little bit and intrigue is the survivor of flames. Oh, what a cool name. What a cool name, especially with where this this week ends, huh? Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, chapter 54 here. Logbook. Preservation's desire to create sentient life was what eventually broke the stalemate. In order to give mankind awareness and independent thought, preservation knew that he would have to give up a part of himself, his own soul, to dwell within mankind. This would leave him just a tiny bit weaker than his opposite, Ruin. The tiny bit seemed inconsequential compared to their total vast sums of power. However, over aeons, this tiny flaw would allow Ruin to overcome preservation, thereby bringing an end to the world. This then was their bargain preservation got mankind the only creations that had more preservation than ruin in them rather than a balance independent life that could think and feel in exchange ruin was given a promise and proof that he could bring an end to all that they had created together it was the pact and preservation eventually broke that i think i explicitly predicted that yeah or did I say uh, something else? That a little bit of preservation was in every person? I mean, a little bit of preservation was in every person. We knew that. That was that was introduced previously. Right. What, we knew what, that when talking about the hemological spikes, because that's what grants the blessing. So I'm, I'm thinking of the prediction of what persevere, what preservation hid from ruin. What did I say for that? His Ruin's body ruins body yeah but yeah but it's not that preservation hit it it's that the lord ruler hit it right yeah right right anyway that was i guess yeah all good this is what we were talking about earlier a little bit this is where that came from the very slow tipping of the scales yeah to make it to make preservation be the one that ultimately doomed everything but did it? I guess that that's what I'm kind of going back and forth with. Like, event, this is pointing to preservation as the one that broke the pact by, as we find out later, trapping ruin. Like, that was the breaking of the pact, specifically. But that was a means of stopping ruin from destroying humanity, because that was also part of the pact. So, who's, fault, who's at fault here? I guess neither of them. It was just kind of delaying the inevitable from preservation's point of view. I don't know. I'm rambling. I mean, no, I I think that there is. Is that not preservation's purpose, though, to like delay the inevitable? Isn't that the whole thing? That's true. So what happened when that pact was broken? And what what did breaking that pact actually do? When the pact was broken, what did that actually do? That's a great question that I think we kind of get to a little bit in the other one right because basically what he's doing is he's preventing he is imprisoning and then preventing the destruction of humanity that was kind of the thing that preservation did right right so that's breaking the pact by not allowing him to kind of freely destroy it after they had let it exist for a time you know Mm -hmm. but what's the 
I guess my question is, what's the comeuppance for that breaking of the pact? Because really all it is is, oh, I'm out now and I'm going to go through with exactly what we set forward to begin with. There's no like retribution. Like that didn't allow him to finally go ahead with this plan because he broke the pact. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the consequence is for that action. I think it's a more severe breaking, right? Like it's nothing is going to be preserved. Everything is going to be destroyed. As opposed to just humanity. Yeah. Or okay. like certain, you know, subsects. It's it's total annihilation. Total ruination, I guess, would be probably the better, you know, workaround. But yeah. Okay. Cool. So after a week of talking through other characters' perspectives, isn't it so interesting how the POVs are so diverse in this book? We are finally back with Vin waking up to a shock as she faces down his and has discussions with Yeoman. Her power is drained by a simple solution. Time and some drugs, mostly the drugs plus the time. And he's devised a number of clever tricks to ensure that she doesn't get any trace metals in the meanwhile, but can humanely keep her alive, including chaining her in silver and removing her bronze earring. She snatches that back and stabs it in her ear. Of course, Ruin returning as we would expect. We find out, of course, that the reason that she's been depowered is to inform Ellen that she's still alive, but captive. What'd you make of this entire kind of section with Yeoman and his sort of plotting and everything that kind of goes on here? His very strategic approach. Yeah, this section is very concise, but Mm -hmm. far-reaching at the same time somehow. Like, we get a good amount of mechanics on the particulars of this world including that silver chain like you talked about and the idea of crafting questions understanding the risk of chondra impersonators and like how to go about devising a question that can be answered without risk of that question being guessed by a chondra so like overall i feel like it's a very cool chapter to read this late in the series and like get those really kind of fine detail points of like how these things work in this world given that these different magic systems exist and how that affects everything from strategy to imprisonment yeah i i think that it it is a really fascinating ad to like go through all these steps to like really define and kind of outline the rules. I, I think that Brandon has talked a couple of different times about like his favorite style of playing D and D is fucking with the world and the characters as acceptable by like given a certain set of rules, how do I break this set of rules? How do I take them and twist them to do what I want? And this is him staring back at his character being like, okay, I need to extract all of the power from you. How do I do that? Like, how do I set this up so that you can't do whatever the fuck you want in this moment? Which I think is a really cool kind of inversion of his, like I was saying, kind of mentality and approach to how he thinks about these things. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, so. It's also, how fun would it be to play D&D with him? <laughs> I think it would be a good time until it wasn't. I, I did watch a brief interview where, where he was talking with Dan Wells about they they did he's another author a friend actually the inspiration for the character wellen that we've talked about it a couple of times and that's why he's also called wells in in that scene by Ritter or ritter or whatever his name is so they were apparently in a campaign together and basically 
went off and like fucked off into oblivion <laughs> like they, they were able to fair like they they formed this like trainee trainer mentality and like went off and did their own thing for like a couple of sessions <laughs> with the d like with the dm and with the other players at the table and were just such an irritation that they like stopped i think that was brandon saying that that was the last campaign that he actually ended up playing in because he just found himself like wanting to both be in charge and be a character at the same time and so you know i mean that's that's why he's a writer the way that he is dan wells is a writer as well as a professional dm as well so yeah it was it was a very funny interview and story that they had told i'm obviously recounting it very poorly but it was a it was a good time yeah also just like a side you know note silver wasn't originally intended to be tin in the alimantic table hmm but he was at, Brandon was under a false impression of the amount of silver that was in pewter, and so changed it to tin because there is far more tin in pewter. So, or gotcha. vice versa. Yeah, yep. So it's interesting, you know, to think about the physics of the metals. But originally, in the first draft, silver. That's pretty so, cool. Yeah, it's neat. It's interesting. As you said, this is a very concise kind of section as we think about it and as we work through a lot of those things. We also find out after that comes to pass that she's to be put to justice for the murder of the Lord Ruler. She's also told to be cautious that she will be killed immediately if she does something reckless, anything reckless at all. And the the guards already have forgiveness and are basically told to act with impunity to ensure that she does nothing brash. Yeah, it's a pretty big bummer, man. It kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. It is kind of a big bummer one might say the fact that she's kind of imprisoned here and very 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 stuck i mean we come back to her in a little bit and we'll talk about like ruin talking to her more but still she's still trapped come the end of that section so there's a lot to overcome yet for for our girl cool we've got our logbook to start off chapter 55 here by sacrificing most of his consciousness preservation created ruins prison breaking their deal and trying to keep ruin from destroying what they had created this even left their powers again nearly balanced ruin imprisoned only a trace of himself capable of leaking out the preservation reduced to a mere wisp of what he once was barely capable of thought and action these two minds were of course independent of the raw force of their powers Actually, I'm uncertain of how thoughts and personality came to be attached to the powers in the first place, but I believe they were not there originally, for both powers could be detached from the minds that ruled them. Hmm. There's so much fun giblets here. Giblets is a good word for them. Both powers could be detached from the minds that ruled them. Mm-hmm. That is in line with the sort of mind-body thing. Body equals power kind of deal. I don't know. This, and I think the next logbook, no, it's a later one. I can't remember. It, it just makes me really remember. It, it's there are so many like just factual and written as if they're completely factual logbooks in a row, and then there's the one concession like I'm not sure or I don't know, and like recognizing that it's a person writing this, and we're dealing with their knowledge base, not necessarily like the knowledge base of the entire world, even though that person has felt the power of the well. And has mm-hmm. has experienced basically the history of the entire world in a flash. So, I don't know. There's a little bit of both when it comes to that sort of idea of tality versus godhood and whether or not they know everything. Yeah, it, it kind of 
it, we don't know who the author is, right? You may have assertions, you may have beliefs as to who you think it is, and and we can definitely talk about those. But or at the very least, you can mention them, and I can sit here and nod. But regardless. We know that there's limitations placed on the information that they have, even though it's vast, even though this information is vast and unprecedented and doesn't match anything that we've seen from any character before, even by a by any stretch. So it does make for a fascinating perspective here. Mm-hmm. Do you have any updated position on who you think the Hero of Ages is? Updated? No. I still think it's Hazed. Okay. Yeah. Rationale? Uh, the way he writes is a big one. Just... Feels like Sazed, you know, Terrisman, which was kind of the originally prophesized hero of ages, was always supposed to be a Terrisman. But right. then again, that's history or uh, not necessarily trustworthy as far as like how long that history has existed and if it was entirely fabricated. But I don't know, can be taken into consideration or is taken into consideration in my case. Okay. That makes sense. All right. So this chapter, we go back with Elend plodding through the thigh-high ash with his new army of Kolos that he's taken from the village that he rescued, and he feels really alone. This fate of being without Vin, not one he had really considered, and without her, he's got a lot on his mind and he feels really powerless and sort of in in a way that he has no ability to influence anything and really feels small and infinitesimal in this game of gods and and destruction calamity it's kind of ironic how he's like constantly talking about how powerful he is and how he shouldn't be this powerful in a lot of different respects but it's all for nothing if not for vin and I think Huey Lewis would have a lot to say about that. What? What are where where are you <laughs> going with this Huey Lewis joke? Oh, the power love. Yeah, okay, fair. I I was like, which which song is he going with with Huey Lewis? No, that's that's great. I I like that quite a bit. Good good shit. <laughs> um, I was trying to remember the the line from Psycho, American Psycho, rather something about hips to be squared. Anyway. <clears throat> Yeah, I I really like that, that idea that really he is, he does feel like nothing and feel like he's defeated. And I think that this gets back to, to your point, the whole power thing. This gets back to the point that we were making earlier about Ellen and the entire idea of where he's at in the world and in life, which is he feels very small and like a single Mistborn is completely negligible. What's interesting about that, though, is that this also places... To the point of the Huey Lewis in the news, this places a ton of weight on this a single Mistborn, on Vin being what's kind of supporting his efforts of the Empire. And without her, it feels very meaningless. And to the same degree that he feels like, oh, I'm just one person. I can't impact the world. I can't change anything. He's putting that same opposite weight and pressure on her to enable him to do so i i just that's such a a fascinating like little way that human psychology works is that i'm nothing without them and it's like well no you're you very clearly are more than nothing you're you're just placing a lot of undue pressure on others by (laughs) acting that way or thinking that way you are more with them but you are not nothing without them (laughs) it's a it's just just how I like thinking about it. So he falls to his knees, ready to give up and lay down in the ash, letting it swallow him whole when someone kneels down beside him. He jumps back and is confronted by who we later know to be preservation. This not missed spirit, but sort of 
when he actually looks at it for the first time, it's it's like an impression where the mist is around it, kind of glowing around it. What did you think of this reveal of this show? Did you expect this? No. Did you expect this confirmation of... Yeah. No, I didn't. But I like how this went down. I think preservation's got to, like, tone it down and not give a motherfucker a heart attack by, like, <laughs> showing up like that. But, you know, can't really help it. That is just something we've been doing a lot i think you and i just personally and this book has been doing quite a bit and very explicitly during this section referring to ruin and preservation as he like mm-hmm. for for a while it's it and then vin i think later on makes makes a very explicit decision to to refer to it as he instead of it and as far as i can tell there's not a really good reason why it's gendered like that in general, other than just putting humanity to it, as opposed to being an it, it is a sentient being, but he versus she doesn't seem to come into play. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that that's a great point with the exception of the hero's logbook, right? The hero's logbook points to, in particular, this logbook with chapter 55 points a little bit more directly at something, right? And seems to show or or espouse that it has a little bit more knowledge maybe tucked in there. So this even left their powers again nearly balanced. Rune imprisoned only a trace of himself capable of leaking out. Preservation reduced to a mere wisp of what he once was, barely capable of thought and action. Those two minds were, of course, independent of the raw force of their powers. And so that gives us this perception of like, there's something separate here. What exactly that is, how that's defined. I don't know. Yeah. It's fun, though. It's fun. It's a, it's a question mark. It's a boop. It's a boop. It's a boop. What do you think about the two of them, though, of Ellen and, and Preservation kind of dancing there in the snow, try, or in the ash, rather, trying to communicate with each other, and the way that Ruin kind of ruins it as they try to write to each other in the ash? There's a lot here, so I want to give space for you to really kind of break it down, given kind of the questions that Ellen asks and the way that this is all approached. What do you think of the whole thing? I thought that it was kind of genius to end on this sort of yes-no gesticulate don't gesticulate kind of conversation form that they land on but what confuses me the most is that he was unable to read the hand motions of preservation when when he said like really exaggerate it and try to write it out so before it can change on the paper i can try like i can i can read i can read the read the hand motions and that doesn't work and he gives two reasons, one that it's being edited in, in real time or that he just doesn't know his letters, but I don't, I don't like that answer. So that points to kind of, it I don't being, know. I, I, I kind of like the fact that he might not know his letters, you know, cause he might speak a very different writing. language, but he's writing and if it can get like automatically translated. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's one Anyway, I I just think that that's an interesting point. It is, you know, on top of it is like, like, what if? I don't fucking know. Like, I write these runes and they turn into your words, whatever, Mm -hmm. man. But if it is that ruin is able to change or like obfuscate his ability to read the read the hand motions by like changing the hand motions, arguably based on how this is described, 
That would mean that Ruin could take agency away from preservation when trying to communicate, which seems weird to I mean, I I think that a lot of that speaks to the the difference in power that we get kind of in the next one, which is to say that like preservation used to be able to stop an inquisitor with a look right or like dissuade an inquisitor from doing something by just looking at it and is no longer anywhere near that capability so it it just speaks to that imbalance i think even further in in the way that he doesn't even have control you know i i think agency is a good way of putting it but i don't think for some reason i don't feel like he's actually blurring or impacting the hands necessarily i'm just double checking here real quick he also confirmed something that's worth pointing out that was a prediction, of course, which is that he ripped all of the corners and the words out of the paper, says its book, which is an important clarification. Right. Yeah. So he is, at the very least, that misspirit. And there are some other confirmations here of close. What he doesn't say is, you tried to kill me. Mm-hmm. So it, <laughs> what he says is specifically when he's holding up his hands, oh, I thought you were talking about the writing itself. I think that it's that he doesn't know his letters because he's swaying his arms around and doesn't know how to draw them, right? I think I don't think that that's losing agency to ruin. I think that's he's fucking up. <laughs> I think within reason that makes sense. Okay. I mean, you could say that it's changing it too, and I think that you could explain that away with the power imbalance as well. I, I think that either way it works. And I think that's actually a fun way of Brandon to kind of point at it and be like, bah. <laughs> <laughs> which is like a lot of this scene kind of has that energy about it of like shrug (laughs) emoji um because it's like what they basically create like a binary system to communicate with some nuance in terms of you know the the shaking vigorously or the jumping up and down to kind of communicate and there's some kind of wiggle room there more vigorous less vigorous but it is still kind of a very like you were saying a yes or no system did you find any of the answers or questions particularly interesting oh do you have a list of them at all Um, i can kind of go through them are you related to the ash no motion are you causing the ash falls no motion is the other thing causing the ash falls wave is it causing the mist to come in the day too no motion are you causing the mists to come in the day it seemed to pause in at this one and then waved about less vigorously than before then ellen's like is that maybe (laughs) so that's that's a weird one all of these, uh, I don't really quite know what to make of it. And I know that there's probably enough information there for me to make a connection and like really run with it. But I feel like I'm just just on the fringes of being able to grasp it all and like understand what's happening there. Like bridging the gap between ruin and preservation and the mists and the ash and like exactly what's happening. I man. It, you are in the exact position that Ellen is where he's like, he's getting all of this information. And he's like, it's mostly stuff I know, but I don't know how to connect it. Right. Yeah. And at the exactly. very least, we've got the leverage of dramatic irony. So we know more than Ellen knows, but, but we're still like, we know the ash mounts were created for like keeping the world cooler. Cause Rashik fucked up and put the, the world too close to the sun. And he's like, nope, I'm not, I'm not undoing that. No control Z, just, I don't know, smoke. (laughs) Like we, we know that much. And I don't know if that's knowledge. I don't think that's knowledge that Alan has yet. Like we strictly know that through the logbook of this book. 
But that's not from ruin. Like this seems to be pointing to, you know? Yeah, yeah. And ruin, he, I think preservation is suggesting that the control is exerted by ruin. Okay. Not that the ash mounts themselves are. Because he kind of follows that up asking about the mists, right? And and that's where the confirmation of like the half and half comes in. You know, there's there's a couple here. There's a couple more here. Do you want me to attack Fadric City? It stood still. Do you want me to not attack Fadric City? It waved vigorously. And he goes, interesting. Next was the mists. They're all connect they're connected to all this, aren't they? Waving. And they're killing my men. It stepped forward, then stood still, somehow urgent. Yeah. So not attacking Fadric City seems to be pointing to the idea that like Ruin is pitting them against each other to cause more annihilation and mm-hmm. just cause more destruction in general. So not attacking Fadric City foils that plan. Uh, God, that last one, that last one, again, there's something so fucking close. I know it, but I don't, I don't know. I just don't have the answer and I wish I did. Right. Because it, it stands up and it's urgent and it says, you reacted. You mean to say that they aren't killing my men? And it waved. That's ridiculous. I've seen my men fall dead. It stepped forward, pointing at Ellen. He glanced down at his sash. The coins, he asked, looking up. It pointed again. Ellen reached into his sash. All that was in there was his metal vials. He pulled one out. Metals? It waved vigorously. It continued to wave and wave. Ellen looked down at the vial. I don't understand. And the creature fell still. It was getting more and more vague as if it were evaporating. Wait, I have another question. One more before you go. Can we beat it? Can we survive? Stillness. Then the creature waved just briefly. Not a vigorous wave, more of a hesitant one. An uncertain one. It evaporated, maintaining that same wave, the mist becoming indistinct and leaving no sign that the creature had been there. As preservation dies. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Bad boy. Sad boy. Sad boy, dead boy. Sad boy, dead boy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, sometimes shit falls out of my mouth and I can't pick it up fast yep. enough. <laughs> I know. Um, Same. So this this chapter ends with Ellen thinking about a leap of faith renewed with the possible chance of survival from that quote we just read yeah i i think it's great that it's it is a fun comparison to a leap of faith in in a very real and grounded way to to jump forward Mm -hmm. and invigorating It, it is he was in such dire straits emotionally and motivation wise like this is renew like i think i think you said renew yeah Mm -hmm. it's a renewal so but not lord renew that's very different very different yep renux renux (laughs) red red redux lord lord renow renoir lord renoir lord renoir uh the french hate us okay so we go into chapter 56 here and this is a very long log book i think it's the longest in the book so far all right so starting off here 
I don't know why Preservation decided to use his last bit of life appearing to Elend during his trek back to Fadrix. From what I understand, Elend didn't learn that much from the meeting. By then, of course, Preservation was but a shadow of himself, and that shadow was under immense destructive pressure from ruin. Perhaps Preservation, or the remnants of what he had been, wanted to get Elend alone. Or perhaps he saw Elend kneeling in that field, and knew that the Emperor of Men was very close to just lying down in the ash, never to rise again. Either way, Preservation did appear, and in doing so, exposed himself to Ruin's attacks. Gone were the days when Preservation could turn away an Inquisitor with a bare gesture. Gone, even, were the days when he could strike a man down to bleed and die. By the time Ellen saw the mist spirit, Preservation must have been barely coherent. I wonder what Ellen would have done had he known that he was in the presence of a dying god, that on that night he had been the last witness of Preservation's passing. If Ellen had waited just a few more minutes on an ashen field, he would have seen a body, short of stature, black hair, prominent nose, fall from the mists, and slump dead into the ash. As it was, the corpse was left alone to be buried in ash. The world was dying. It's gods had to die with it. I think the option posited that like Ellen was close to just slumping over and giving up is probably the most reasonable explanation. I'd forgotten about that physical body part. And does that match any descriptions that we currently have of people that we've met? Short of stature, black hair, prominent nose. You. I don't have black (laughs) hair. How dare you? brown I'll, I'll i'll own the short of stature and black hair i or prominent nose i guess the not that short. The short of stature is yeah i'm i'm decisively slightly above average in height at 511 but mm-hmm. yeah i just thought that joke was fun it was it was fun it was it was fun i'm two inches above average leave me alone uh yeah no I, I agree is- with you what this does is point to the um, Mistborn that Vin was following that wasn't a mm-hmm. spirit. Like, that is the same description of short of stature. So, at least so you think that, that they were following around, following around preservation as though preservation was leading them. Yeah. Perhaps. Okay. Right. Because at, yeah. at one point she's following what we assume to be the Mist spirit, but she's like, no, I, I see it. It's physical in form and it's a short male person i think so Mm -hmm. i don't know right right and the fact that it's you know i mean there's the argument too that it's preservation so is the reason that she's able to detect it because it's the power of the metals you know like it is it's constantly burning to some degree so yeah i don't know but the physical body falling out was definitely one of the things in my original read that always stood out to me this idea that we, we seem to be playing with these forces, but to give it this very real corporeal form, human even, yeah, makes it vulnerable in a way. Mm-hmm. Even though it also alludes that they've lived for aeons. So. Right. All right. Mm-hmm. So getting into the chapter, we start with Spook and his blackboard, planning on exactly what he... Uh, sorry. We start with Spook and his blackboard, planning on how exactly he can reveal the powers of... It's kind of a nice... It's a nice little moment. Yeah. And Kelsey, Kelsey always used a blackboard, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So this is also kind of a, a subtle callback in in its own way. I do find it funny that when we get into this a little bit more, obviously 
Beldra comes in and there's the Eastern street slang conversation because it's written all over the board, you know, like it's just this kind of moment of the crossing of the two worlds. And I think that is meant to be not the street slang itself, but the fact that it's written in his language kind of plays off this idea that he is, he's still the kid who spoke in the funny language in the first book, but is ultimately mirroring and developing and changing into this person and emulating a lot of the things that he likes from Kelsier. And I think this is the section where we learn that that Eastern street slang wasn't what he grew up speaking like in his home. No, like he adopted that with his sort of street gang friends and then like had a tough time switching back and forth when coming home and talking to his parents which I found that really fascinating. Mm-hmm. It just it, it just seemed like, oh, that's just the dialect of whatever countryside he came from. But in reality, he's this was a choice entirely. He chose to adopt that street slang and that accent. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, I I think it's important to point it out to to exactly the point that you're saying is that. I think we do get a little bit of this earlier when we do kind of the flashback in his memory to the past, in which I think his dad makes a mention of his kind of language and how he can't shut it off and speaking gibberish and nonsense and kind of, you know, the piece of shit that his father is at the time. All of that to say, I think it is kind of a great full circle moment that he, it was never comprehension or like inability It was just like rote memorization being submerged in it for so long that it was hard to go back. Like if you spent a lot of time, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like, I think an interesting comparison is even like generational comparisons, right? Like Gen Z's language, the, the Zoomers on TikTok and blah, blah, blah and whatever. Like there is there are certain dialects and ticks that just don't click right away. And that feels kind of like the way that Eastern street slang is supposed to be. It's just that he got stuck in it and he was never not talking in cliches and like strict vibes and just chilling and has the drip and like everything else. Like all of that could be (laughs) nonsense to the wrong person. You know what I mean? Um, And it feels like it's playing on that trope a little bit, like that misunderstanding. So going off of that a little bit, do you think that can, do you think a comparison can be drawn between that and his decision and persistence and stubbornness in not turning off his tin? I think so. I think that that's a character trait is this man. Th- this kid is incredibly stubborn. Also, it says that Kelsier is very hip because he understood Eastern street slang. That's fair. Yeah. Kelsier is hip to be square for sure. For sure. Full Huey Lewis <laughs> in the news on this episode. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think that that just speaks to the, the character is that he is he's always been kind of standoffish too. you know, I, and I think a lot of that has been insecurity and insecurity has made spook in a lot of ways double down on his traits, I think, which goes from tin to language to how he behaves around everyone. Standoffish, I feel like, is how he was in the first two books most of the time. So uh, we're, we've been talking about the street slang and Beldra coming in. 
And it kind of alludes to the fact that she kind of alludes to the fact, I should say, that Quellian is not going to reveal his allomancy in front of a crowd. But Spook is too consumed by his plan to look up from his plan and see the very fault that she's potentially alluding to. Like he is so to the point that we're making, he's so adamant and stuck in exactly what he thinks he needs to be doing that he can't take a moment to even parse her words and what she's saying (laughs) in this moment, which is that. Bro, he's not an answer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Asking what do you mean by that would be enough, you know? Well, she she has logic there that she's playing into as well. Mm-hmm. So even if he does ask, like, what do you mean by that? She has an answer that's not... He's not an answer. It's... He's too well-disciplined to give up that, that secret in front of everybody yeah i guess he's i think that that's still when he's skipping around it if that makes sense or when they're both kind of skipping around it um but i do i do agree with you i think that i think she would have given it up though i still think he's being sued throughout all of this though so like Mm. i don't know you're right in that it doesn't have to be soothing it can just be hormones and (laughs) i think it's also his personality also just be fixation yeah mm-hmm. but i think soothing's in there or yeah. rioting whatever whatever it is right you're you're giving another mix another layer on this mm-hmm. okay to be clear like I don't, I don't think she's another two alamance like two metal alamancer i think she's a mistborn so it could be either right or both right you're you're not suggesting that she's a tool of ruin you're just suggesting that she's a, a full, a full mistborn homie, mm-hmm. a tool. Yes, perhaps. Okay, so we we then move to Sazed in the evacuation of the troops by Goradel. Breeze believes that Quellian is making a counter move to get them in place to fight against whatever whatever Spook is doing. I want to kind of do something we don't do very frequently and add context to this beyond kind of our first pass analysis that we usually go through. This seems to be like Kelsier moving these two forces directly against each other, drawn to conflict to destroy the city per its intent and sort of the provocation of what it wants to do here, right? Because it's basically taking two spiked individuals that it knows both want control and just shoving them against each other and watching the whole thing burn. I mean, that's what's happening in Fadric City as well, right? Not to the same extent, but similarly, I think. I mean... I think that it's not quite as direct, but it is similar. You know, like right, this not, is this is yeah, much this more. Is, this is dude with two. Other. Yes, yes, exactly. That's kind of <laughs> versus the other one is more like, ah, uh, yes, I've been playing. I've been playing this game of Axis and Allies for a very long time, and I've tricked my enemies into attacking each other. <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's our difference here. We've got we've got highfalutin mustache twirling ruin on one side of the nation and literal child ruin on the other side of the nation <laughs> smashing action figures together. Um, both, you, both are kind of effective. Uh, both are effective in their own rights. It's just a matter of getting spook in, or not spook spikes into people. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you've got Penrod just <laughs> playing alone, stepping on Legos intentionally. <laughs> 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 just that'd be a really bad time you know i like how it feels <laughs> uh, I, yeah that would, that would not be great 
not be great for anyone involved. I, but I, I love that this idea of really being able to kind of take, we have to take, I think, the 10,000 foot view here and try to look at what exactly is going on. And I think that's what's so fascinating about how this entire series opens up after you get to this book because you start to see the games that were being played before our very eyes in the books before. Yeah. By, by Rune and Preservation. Because there's always been this subtext, this metagame kind of going on in the background here that we aren't really aware of until now. It's just, I, I don't know how better to describe it than pawns. Like, it's, it makes everything feel so insignificant, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it makes even the Lord Ruler feel insignificant. It makes Kelsier's whole rebellion seem insignificant. It makes him a pawn. It literally makes him a tool and makes him incorrect and like used to bring about the end of the world. You know? Yeah. Like Kelsier was not, was genuinely tricked. And it's not that that doesn't make him a good dude or not. Like that doesn't, it's, it's nothing on his character necessarily in that moment but he was literally deceived and is nothing more than an insignificant speck in a cosmic game of of forces and chess that's a way to put it that's an accurate way to put it i think but yeah 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 oh kelsier 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 it's always great to see the person who also is like the superpowered badass get like put put in the ground i think is a a good thing to some degree yeah in storytelling i don't know it kind of sets your power dynamics and like kelsey was just almost too badass as well you know what i mean like just too good he was pretty good but i mean vin was better vin is better even when he was alive though i guess i don't just mean from like the power capability so much as like his entire personality is oh i am a badass like you know what i mean He's the best at everything. And I'm not saying that he's like a Gary Stew or anything like that. It's more like he's just so good. I don't know why I'm going on this Kelsier rant. I can be done with that. I love how this chapter ends personally with this conversation between Spook and Staza hitting on the topics of Tindwill and Faith and kind of what she'd want to see in these moments. And Spook reflects back to the first question that Staza asked him when they got here and finally replies with an answer that is both the most profound and also imminently obvious answer to the question, if that makes sense. It, it's, it really seems to be the only potential answer that the story could provide, right? That's what I mean by imminently obvious. To quote, Faith means that it doesn't matter what happens. You can trust that somebody is watching. Trust that somebody will make it all right. It means that there will always be a way. And in that, Seiza determines finally... That it is what he needs to fight to get back to who he was. This, I mean, this is such a good character arc overall. This feels full, like I, not not to say complete, but it, it feels like a very full arc and just unadulterated and real. We see this real huge, like these highs, this such high high with him and Tindwell into this just fucking trench. And we're finally seeing that like he, we, we've seen him grow and like climb out of it, but we're finally seeing that sort of peak of sunrise over the, over the horizon. And it, it's just a heartwarming, like 
turn for this character. I love it. Totally. It's it's it feels so needed from him, you know, especially when he's I, I can't remember if it's in this chapter or the next where he's down to 20 or he's eliminated another 20 religions right off of the roster. And so he's like dwindling. I think at this point that puts him at like 30 left, maybe less. And mm-hmm. and so we're just at this point of almost being done with kind of his quest and search for faith. And finally, he can he looks up from that bowel of depression and and stares and realizes what he needs to do. And I think come chapter 58, he has, you know, committed to those changes and is no longer facing this with kind of a dour attitude that he's had this whole time. And I don't mean to say that what you, the way that you beat depression is by just picking your chin up and like fighting through it. But, but I think that there is a difference between being depressed and having depression. And I think that this is an example of him finally coming to the realization of why he's depressed and working through, you know, it's he could men will literally terrorist men will literally do anything but go to therapy and will literally store all of their knowledge in rocks and their trauma and in little metal rocks and whatever else. But I, I just appreciate the sentiment here that he's finally kind of broken through the way that he needs to. It was a very long-winded way of getting to that point, but yeah, cool. With that, we go to chapter 57. We've got another logbook here. Of course, like we do with every chapter. I don't know why you say it every time. I have come to see that each power has three aspects. A physical one, which can be seen in the creations made by ruin and preservation. A spiritual one in the unseen energy that permeates all of the world and a cognitive one in the minds which controlled that energy. There is more to this, much more than even I do not yet comprehend. I thought I wrote something on the end of that. (laughs) I was like, did I add? No, 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 that's actually the words. Yeah, this is sort of that other one that I was talking about earlier. That's like Mm -hmm. this reminder that we're dealing with somebody who is not infallible. So three aspects, physical, actual, and cognitive the cognitive one is interesting to delineate between like physical because it's talking about controlling of energy and that could be very easily described as a physical component you know so how how is that delineation made i don't know no you don't (laughs) just kidding but it is it is a fascinating point right to say that there are these kind of three areas and aspects right and i think in particular to put into like really ground these aspects in you know spiritual cognitive and physical i think in particular to say that the spiritual realm is like real is really interesting right because it's an affirmation like often the entire concept of faith is it's something that you believe in in the absence of absolute proof or certainty right it's that's sort of the an aspect of faith it is something that you are individually certain in without abject proof necessarily that's not the that's not even a close you understand my point i don't need to go much further into that definition but this is saying that there is like a real spiritual power and that there is a real cognitive like mental power so it's interesting that it it also seems to separate like the brain and the soul you know because usually Mm -hmm. people that that's one of the things in like anatomy that we have a tough time with is like 
I mean, not anatomy, but you know, when you think about spirituality, it's like, okay, your personality is in your brain, but is it re- like, we can't really nail that down as cleanly as we want to at this point with technology and otherwise. So it's, it's fascinating to see it broken up into these three aspects and like that definition between the spiritual and the cognitive, I think is the most interesting. Yeah. But I, I do I do find it fascinating that you think that the physical and the cognitive is the most interesting dissonance to you. It's all it's all interesting. Yeah, right. I just fixate on the other two. Fair. Yeah. I mean, that's that's all I'm saying. I mean I'm in your boat with this. I'm just saying like it's a it's a it's a interest, you know? It is an interest. Yeah. So we're back with Vin locked in the cell, and a lot of this chapter is dominated by thoughts about ruin before we get to those i wanted to mention something a bit more interesting here that vin has retained control over her coloss despite her being depleted of metals i think that makes sense like we we've she's not constantly burning zinc to maintain control we've we've seen her maintain control without actively doing anything including burning metals and i feel like that was pretty well established early on like they can make con- maintain control through sleeping and through just being unconscious in general with that said i don't think we've ever seen her without a reserve of metals so i guess this is good new information you're right but i feel like the logic there is the same as what we've dealt with previously yeah i don't feel like I'm not trying to say that the the logic is necessarily broken or anything, but it's the no. fact that it's still it's still there leads to a sense of this control being established and then like remains. You know what I mean? Like the, that magical connection is still tangible in a different way. Why yeah. is it tangible? How is it tangible? Blood, man. Blood. 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 <laughs> blood dude blood <laughs> i don't know i just imagine some hippie bullshit with the way you said blood for some reason <laughs> hmm blood huh yep okay i don't have a better explanation and i don't have any Fair. expounding upon that all right all right i i blood. it's cool I, I, and then there's ruin <laughs> and her conversation therein. This dominates most of the chapter. And he really, really goes for kind of explaining his victory and how it's at hand and sort of the way that he's kind of domineered over this world. And again, we get another kind of monologue. And I, I really, I really like ruin as a character and kind of from the, from the perspective of the way that he speaks in the text. And it's, it's very interesting, especially from this extra godly perspective. He says, I keep trying to explain this process we are engaged in, the end of all things. It's not a fight, but a simple culmination of inevitability. Can any man make a pocket watch that won't eventually wind down? Can you imagine a lantern that won't eventually burn out? All things end. Think of me as a caretaker, one who watches the shop and makes certain that the lights are turned out and that everything is cleaned up once closing time arrives. And, I mean, he practically sounds like a man of culture when he puts it that way. There's just, there's just something really, like, lofty and, again, must, like, I don't, I don't want to paint this too much in, like, a bad way, but it's almost, like, mustache twirly a bit, you know, in the way that he describes it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get you, but fuck, dude. I love this philosophy. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but this really speaks to me. And I don't know what that means for me, 
but I really like that explanation of just how the world needs to work. I yeah. don't know. I don't know. A simple culmination of inevitability. As simple as that is, it really does an excellent job of explaining what ruin is. And he really, at this point, is just pushing the ball down the hill because he's been prevented from doing so for so long. And ruin hasn't come the way that it was supposed to. So now he's just mm-hmm. got to give it a shove, basically. Yeah. I just like it. I just like it. And yeah, he's he's essentially like... To to put it in your terms, he's not pushing the ball down the down the hill. He's gotten a running start, and he's just fucking drop kicking it. Yeah, like he he is frustrated at his millennia of being trapped. And you know what? He's gonna he's just gonna let it rip a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I. I can see where you're coming from as far as the mush mustache twirly kind of deal goes, but I think that points to sort of malice. And I don't think that's what this is. I think this yeah, is no. just him enacting nature. Like this isn't him enacting the only thing that he knows and the only thing that he is, you know? So it's less, mm-hmm. less a malicious, like I'm doing this and you like, I'm doing this to spite you. It's I'm doing this. You can't stop me because it's just, it just is. It's not even like you can't stop me. You can't undo this. And there's question of whether or not that's the case. We'll see. That's ruins perspective. Totally. Totally. There, there are a couple of other things that kind of get tucked in here, right? Within ruins perspective to kind of point to those things. One is, I, to to your point about the sort of lack of malice, I think that he really doesn't have malice. He just sees this as comeuppance for the eventuality of their pact. Like this is just the, the and by comeuppance, I mean an eventuality by the agreement that he agreed to. This is something that was bound and destined to happen, and that there was it, it is literally inevitable. But I do feel like there's a little bit of malice and hatred towards preservation in particular. He does seem to get a little bit spiteful there. Of course, it's because he was betrayed, you know. So that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. All that all that to say, I don't think that he is a there is some personality not just intent if that makes sense like ruin has personality beyond just the sort of force of nature that he kind of gives off to vin in the moment okay does that make sense he is he's portraying things very level like i said i don't think mustache twirly is right i'm saying that just from a language perspective it feels kind of mustache twirly but not Mm -hmm. from his presentation or even his ethos and approach it's really the only time that he he genuinely feels like he's been impassioned or even slighted in the conversation is when preservation comes up, right? And that is when a voice from Vin's past whispers, you know, what's the first rule of Alamancy, Vin? And then we get the consequence, right? So there's the A and the B, the push and the pull of everything, you know? Mm-hmm. And she suggests and then basically discovers preservation through the suggestion here, right? So this is where she learns strictly of preservation being real is in this conversation, which she kind of surmises that the opposite is dead. Right. Yeah. So there's still like preservation's dead. We, we know that through seeing the body and through the, through the logbook, through Ellen, but 
we also know that humanity possesses that sort of sliver of preservation each individually can that be harnessed somehow i guess that would be the one the one point i can think of where ruin is overlooking regarding preservation's maintained influence over this scenario if the individual pieces that preservation had sacrificed to create humanity could be harnessed somehow Mm -hmm. yeah okay yeah i mean i think that's a reasonable theory and i think that's something that he's not considering in the moment Right. And I, I think that would be the one thing that, well, there, there's something potentially that preservation had seemed to have an idea that there was something that could hypothetically be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that seems like a good candidate for that, in my mind at least. Makes sense to me. I I really, I appreciate the way that this chapter kind of folds into an end, right, with, you know that she that ruin comes for her because he wants her to see the end of the world he wants her to make it to the end of the world so that she can see the destruction that's wrought and be one of the last to go which i think is a a little bit vindictive maybe perhaps but maybe but i think that that's not i don't think that's necessarily vindictive actually the more that i think about it i think it's more in its own way showing what she wrought upon the world, right? So it's like, you did this by freeing me. You get to reap the, you get to see the consequence of your actions, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think is a little bit less malicious and more vindictive maybe, but in a, not vindictive is not quite correct, but you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, I know it's right along those lines. It's um, in there. It's in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. He also provides the, the timeline that there are days, not weeks, and as we know, staring at the book, we only have three weeks left in this sucker. So the end of the world fast approaches. It does. Cool. And the logbook kind of points to that as well. Like confirms mm-hmm. that this is like, I don't know, shit's ending. Yeah. Right. The logbook has been very consistent throughout saying the end of the world. The world has ended multiple times. Yeah. Cool. All right. So with that, we leave that and we enter into the last chapter of part four. We have chapter 58 here with a final logbook entry of the week, because since it's a part break, we don't read the next one. So final logbook. Once you begin to understand these things, you can see how Rune was trapped, even though preservation's mind was gone, expended to create the prison. The preservation's consciousness was mostly destroyed. His spirit and body were still in force. And as an opposite force of Rune, there could... These could still prevent Rune from destroying, or at least keep him from destroying things too quickly. Once his mind was freed from its prison, the destruction accelerated rapidly. Mm-hmm. So this feels like a zero-sum game to a certain extent. That, that sort of process of trapping Ruin didn't stop Ruin from influencing anything, but did... like. It feels like they were kind of working with each other to a certain Mm -hmm. inevitability. And then that decision was made to break the pact. But Ruin was still able to like push things forward in a certain, like at a certain rate. And preservation's ability to push things, push back was diminished based on creating that prison. So they're kind of at the same spot, you know? I don't know. Yeah, they're, they're just they're both both their impacts are diminished on the world. 
pretty significantly, but I think. Seemingly equally. Mm-hmm. Maybe not entirely. Maybe, I don't know. Not entirely. We, yeah. We talked about I mean, the but we know that thousand year span of like no progression in society and fashion and all that stuff. Like there's that. So that theory is kind of shot, but. Well, I think that that speaks to the Lord ruler as well. Like, and yes, that is the influence of preservation. But I, I think that for the most part, that is also the influence of the Lord ruler directly over culture. And this idea that, you know, making a consistent, persistent empire that has consistent rules and doesn't change that much was the best way of ensuring that ruin could never be freed from the prison and that the Lord ruler in turn could just harness the power of preservation on a cycle and, you know, be fine basically. Yeah. Yeah. And maintain the balance on his own. Unfortunately, he failed. He didn't even make it one cycle. Nope. Killed by a little girl. Little girl with a spear. (laughs) So we start this chapter examining the spectacular work that Sazed has done to create a system to refill the street slots with water and to fulfill Spook's eventual plan of bringing back the water to the people and to these canals in general. A mostly nonviolent way of wresting control from Quellian, of which I think is, again, to the point, like really great from Brandon's perspective of trying to nail these themes down, of finding a way to work to conquer without violence as much as possible. Yeah. Conquer without violence. But, I mean, but there is violence. Right. And that's Rune's influence, right? So, like, that's, I think that even gets into, like, the Beldra quote of, like, there being these two very different people, right? So, it's the Ruin influence versus, I, all that I'm saying is that thematically, the idea is to try to take both of these cities without violence, right? Like, without the actual need to kill people. But there that's is a, violence okay. still. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Like, the plans go awry, and then people die. But that's kind of built into the plan, you know, that's built into ruins plan. Yeah. Or the but, pact, but all the plans like there, there are contingencies for like, they're working to minimize the deaths, but I don't think there are really any that straight up aim for zero. I mean, the goal of everything is minimization of death, right? Like that's, that is truly mm-hmm. the aim, but you, like you're, like you're saying, like the contingencies do not necessarily, but the idea with like going in for yeoman is very like low impact and like to have that conversation and just sneak in to make it work. The idea of going through with a siege, the idea is to not force fight to, you know, let as many people kind of escape over time or, you know, be starved and then have Quellian be ousted that way is is meant to be a less violent form of, you know, occupation. I'm not saying it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but the the it points to humanity tending towards a firmer combination of like ruin and preservation. If you want to think about it that way, like the goal is, is to preserve as much life as possible. But the only way to get people to break down by definition is to, you know, inflict ruin upon them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's kind of, they kind of go hand in hand. Of course, that's the entire theming here. Right. So, okay. Does that make sense? That's my thought at the very least. Yeah. Cool. So we start this chapter examining the spectacular work that says it has done to create a system to refill. I said that 
All right. But as Beldris says, it amazes me that you can be such different people at the same time. How can a man who would do such a beautiful thing for my city also plan such destruction? What did you make of her brother's letter in response on kind of your past, the first, you know, his his return writing? I mean, I it gave me a little bit of an inkling that there was something something more going on between Ruin and Quellian in sort of a similar way. It didn't, that said, detract from the oh fuck moment later on when Quellian's like talking to Kelsier mm-hmm. in the end. But I, that that sort of idea was percolating a little bit after this yeah. letter. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, second read through, way more clear. Way more clear that it's, yeah, Rune Kelsier mm-hmm. coming through. And there's there's the additional question of, was this rewritten by Ruin? You know what I mean? Like, was this potentially just altered to begin with? Oh, I hadn't even considered that. <laughs> like, that's a good question. There's some of that, too, because he's, he's just moving the pawns around, you know? He's shuffling the action figures into each other. He needs to make sure that they collide. Yep. Fuck. Anything textual, man. Anything said out loud even is manipulated and used, you know? Right. Well, anything said out loud is heard. Yeah. But can it be manipulated? Oh, no, no, no. I'm saying manipulated in the fact that he can use that information, not that he can change it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not, Not the way that he can change physical text. So... That's different. And just like that, it's time for Spook to go. He heads out ready to expose Quellian. He arrives during a speech, and Dern leaves to begin a small disturbance, even though there already appears to be some occurring naturally, you know, at night. You know, there's some kind of petty thievery going on in some of the noble houses and whatnot. Spook, noticing the fires a little bit later, believes it to be the same fires as those that started and even draws the comparison to the rebellion against the Lord Ruler. He strikes towards Quellian as a bell rings in the distance, giving the scene this almost like western feel like i imagine the like a bell tolling in the background you know a couple of times but he he knocks away a couple of thugs very easily spook is manipulated by kelsier to seemingly kill one after telling him his family is safe as well and that's just a oh fuck moment yeah i loved this scene setup and this sort of jump into the action here i hadn't quite pegged it as you had as a western but now I can't think of it as anything other than that. Like that, that seems like a perfect way to set that up and like really describes it. Well, it's kind of showdowny, right? Like the, the mayor's giving a speech in the town to get the people riled up for like a hanging. And then, you know, <laughs> hero shows up. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of how it just pops into my brain very cleanly. So, it is it is a very good scene though the whole thing and especially even the comparisons that are drawn between you know our survivors as they were is just excellent. Mm-hmm. So Spook finally makes his way to Quellian, prepared to reveal him as an Alamancer when he's shot in the arm by a coin from behind. After all, Quellian wasn't the Alamancer; it was Beldra. Mm-hmm. Ah, shucky ducky. <laughs> shucky ducky. <laughs> What'd you, what'd you think of this? Totally, totally makes sense in retrospect. I'm still kind of trying to figure out the sad eyes comments from earlier. And I, I think there's a couple explanations. One, just 
her not wanting to be in this situation that they're in, in general, wanting to be in more of a, an idealized scenario where she's not bodyguard to her brother. Who's like kind of becoming a tyrant entirely becoming a tyrant. But I think it can also point to the fact that like spook is placing attributions onto her undeservingly. Like, like I had mentioned before way early on where like he's finally up close and only then knows what color eyes she has. Like if he can't tell that from that far back, how can you tell if her eyes look sad? So is it just like external attributions that he's placing on Beldra to like motivate himself to interact with her more? I don't know. That's the sort of train of thought I went on. I feel like it's got to be the latter, right? I feel like it's got to be the latter that it's, it's just him placing that on her as kind of a, a sort of, idealization of sorts and placing because again the entire thing with spook up until this point is he has been making so many assumptions about everything because he feels like he sees so much in people based on the way that they react to things and the impressions and he does a lot of the time so he can he can act and make those assumptions and act upon them but he is not greater reading emotions the emotionality of it right so poor guy Poor guy. Indeed. So, Quellian is exposed for a hypocrite, and Spook comes to realize that he's been wrong. Even notices him beg Kelsier for help. Kelsier goads Spook into killing Beldra and stealing her powers with a spike. Spook quickly puts two and two together, freeing both he and Quellian of their spikes, and Kelsier screams as he dissipates from Spook's and, assumptively, Quellian's consciousness. So, few things about the, uh, the spikes here. Mm-hmm. Was Quellian not imbued with any sort of power by this spike? Like, is that only something that happens if you're already an Alamancer? Has that been talked about? I think maybe at one point it was. No, I, I thought it explicitly like imbued powers into people. These hemological spikes. Mm-hmm. Um, so what sort of power did he have at that point? If that's the case regarding the, piece of metal in spook i would think given that he becomes a pewter user that the little tip of the sword would have had to have been pewter as well or is that not how this works leave it's specific that it's steel okay hmm it would make sense to be steel like i would expect a sword tip to be like i would expect a sword to be steel but i don't i guess then the The metal spike itself is just kind of a conduit for ruin to influence and doesn't have anything to do with the actual hemological properties imbued by the spike, right? Is that the idea? Am I just getting too far in the weeds? Repeat what you said one more time. Just the last bit. So treating the tip of the sword as a spike. Mm -hmm. Yep. That being embedded in spook is... Is a hemological spike because it like impaled an Alamancer, killed him, and went into spook, but is strictly being used as a conduit for Ruin to influence spook. And Ruin is the one giving the pewter abilities. Oh no, I think very clearly the spike is giving him pewter. Because he loses it. Even when he though pulls it's a it steel spike? Yeah. Okay. Um cool. 
So <laughs> can, can confirm. Uh, Sounds good. But and I guess hmm. in that respect, hmm. what metal was the spike that was holding up the stage that Ruin wanted Spook to use on Beldra? It's a great question. That's just more idle idle curiosity than actually. Like, well, do you remember the spook or the spike that was used on Quellian? No. Bronze. It was bronze. Oh, that makes sense. Considering he was able to pick out Spook right away in that crowd when he was talking to Beldra. Because we know how bronze spikes work through Vin. Mm-hmm. And it does correlate right. one to one with bronze. Man, okay. Alimantic metal. Well, right. It does it does in that case and circumstance. So that does beg a question of like scrunch face reaction. That said, it is a steel spike that supports this stage. It is specified. Okay. Thug coin shot. Thug coin shot, ten I? Pretty fucking sweet. It would have been pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, being removed of his pewter powers, Spook is delirious. He lets his tin dim, relieving him of sensation and returning to the dumbness he cited previously. Inside him, the voice of Kelsier rings out. You want to be like Kelsier? Really like Kelsier? Then fight when you are beaten. Survive. He makes his way, with the help of Sazed and Beldra, back to the dam and realizes what has to be done. Mm -hmm. So, this actually is very relevant to something I wanted to talk about anyway, because we had some conversations about this since the episode last week aired Mm -hmm. um, regarding sort of inner monologues and sort of internal voices. And I I think I was a little bit sort of too rigid in my stance on that. So you're right. I'm wrong. And this is a very great example as to why this being kelsier's voice presumably but definitely just kelsier's sort of memory in spook's mind speaking out to him yeah definitely kelsier's memory yeah in the same way that reen you know is occasionally summoned and it's not you know right our boy ruin our boy okay we can't we can't just apply our boy willy-nilly we can't we get can. it to ruin and we do well i mean we can't constantly but but Ruin is maybe not our boy. <laughs> um, you know, our that's, that's a good point on the internal monologue. <laughs> dead boy preservation. Sad boy preservation. Sad dead boy preservation. Okay. Any Anything else on the, the whole, like, move that he makes and sort of the way that he crawls here through the city? Kind of numb? I mean, it, it's kind of a blur to me, honestly. It's very tense. It's a it very, very tense. Yeah. And he's, like, holding off on burning anything. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. It's just... Sure. It's all leading up to such a good climax. It's true. Which is where we end the week, right? We've got our last little tidbit here to talk about. When they make it, it seems impossible. And, like, there will be no time to accomplish what must be done to open the floodgates. To give water so that the cities can be... Yeah, prevented from burning down in its entirety. He one runs through the crew, the memories of the letters in his head, and he hears again in his mind Kelsier's voice. I named you Spook. You are my friend. Isn't that enough? 
in reference to these letters that everyone else received. And it just places this sort of prominence and focus on on Spook and this sort of inspiration. And Spook runs into the burning building. The survivor of the flames finds the lever and gears that says it had been crafting and gets it to move, letting the water flow, but slumping to the ground afterwards. Yeah, I... I'm really intrigued by the final line of this section, which is alone in the cold and blackness and operating under the assumption that this is kind of his swan song. I, I like that these parallels continue to be drawn between him and Kelsier up to and including martyrdom. Mm-hmm. He, he became exactly what he always wished he could have been. And arguably always was exactly what he wished he could have been. Yeah. Of this this important remembered person in Kelsier's eyes. But he, he got to yeah. prove it. He did, and that's such a big deal. I think I think that's what makes this so memorable. And I love that you brought up the comparison with with Kelsier, because I think that's entirely what this section is pulling on, right? But I think that really it really makes him be the hero that he'd always strove to be and he made the decision and he did the thing and he proved that you don't need all of the powers to do the heroic thing the right thing even Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases so it's an unfortunate end for our boy spook we leave him in the cold and blackness his tin gone is my assumption there he kind of finally snuffed it out so that he didn't have to feel was about to happen and yeah that's yeah. spook that's spook and that's where we end the week next week we start part five trust we the do have part? some this is the final part of the book this is it this is the last one it's the last part of the original trilogy three more episodes oh. of this and then yeah. we got our individual wrap-up where you and i'll just t- chat about the series maybe with a guest and then we have our real wrap-up with shard cast and those from span reads i don't know if we've really talked about this yet but the 17th shard and shard cast are going to be joining us for an episode to discuss the first era so it's gonna be a fun time i'm very excited i mean you knew that but no i I know i knew that i'm just saying i'm excited for it yeah That said, we do have a couple of predictions per kind of what we were going over last week. I feel like it makes sense to just save these for that final episode, be it the full wrap-up of the book or what have you. I think it'll be fun to kind of pay it off that way and then kind of talk about them too. And that could be an interesting kind of send-off versus what we usually do. So with that, next week we start part five, trust and read chapters 59 through 65. And that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, Tim and Andrew, for keeping our show going. You can check out our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, websites, all of our social media accounts, all in one very convenient spot. Yeah, and you can find us, of course, Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit, Words and Whiskey Show at gmail.com, Words Whiskey Pod on facebook as well patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey t-shirts on t public make sure to follow our link and you can see all of our links inside of the show notes as well per you know what what pj was saying the final note of course two final little little buttons to put on top of this episode one if you haven't 
already checked it out check out tales of kana search catacomb party tales of kana atomic pylon you'll be able to find it it's our wonderful DD show we put out our fourth episode this last week and we hope that you give it a listen it's a joy to uh, to listen to to record to take part in very excited and then also as mentioned at the top of the episode you can find a link to the indiegogo support for link or lit reactor to help a company of writers help foster new writers and continue to grow that writing community and the support that they need to do it it would it means a lot to me it's meant a lot to me over the years and so i'm there you go we're we're gonna edit that part out but (laughs) go go check out the the fundraiser and help out if you can great cool see you next week see you then